Joseph walked into camp with firewood still in his arms. One of the riders trotted up to him with a pistol in his hand. Are you a Mormon? he demanded. Joseph looked him in the eye, fully expecting the man to shoot him. Yes, sirree, he said, dyed in the wool, true blue, through and through. The man gazed back at Joseph, bewildered. He lowered his pistol and seemed for a moment to be paralyzed. Shake, young fellow, he then said, reaching out his hand. I am glad to see a man that stands up for his convictions. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be discussing Chapter 19, The Chambers of the Lord, found in Saints Volume 2. And we're lucky today to have with us a historian and archivist from the Joseph Smith Papers Project, Robin Scott Jensen. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. It's good to be here. So in our episode today, Robin, we're going to be talking about the Utah War. Can you kind of set the scene, just remind us a little bit uh, for our listeners, what's led up to this moment and why is there an army on the way to Utah? Yeah, so if there was one word that I would summarize the Utah War, it would be miscommunication. I think both Latter-day Saints in Utah and largely the Eastern presses, the government, whatnot, they were talking past one another. They felt that they were each doing each other harm, uh, mischaracterizing what they were about. But the editors of the newspapers felt that the Latter-day Saints were uh, not being appropriate in their territorial responsibilities. So the government took some of that to heart and felt that there was some treason going on in Utah. There were charges of treason and other unfaithful attitudes toward the government. And they ended up, James Buchanan, who was president at the time, sent an army to Utah to quell the rebellion, essentially, of the Latter-day Saints, a rebellion that the Latter-day Saints would not have recognized. They, they felt that this was wildly inappropriate, an overstretch of power. And this really was the biggest use of the federal government uh, until the Civil War. This was a remarkable display of force by the federal government. Wow. Our listeners might remember in a previous episode the appointed governor to the territory asked to speak to the saints and he'd kind of chided them on their practice of plural marriage mm -hmm. and Brigham was rather explosive and then as you mentioned this the eastern press just took that and it seems to have just snowballed into this general rebellion which wasn't really even happening and then from the saints perspective this would be terrifying because yeah. thinking about their history yeah absolutely uh, they had spent a decade in the United States at the time, Illinois, Missouri, uh, even Ohio to some degree, where they felt that they had been persecuted. And, you know, we have the extermination order in Missouri in 1838, where literally the government told the saints that they needed to be driven from the state. And so you can imagine many of the Latter-day Saints in Utah who had experienced that were thinking to themselves, uh-oh, here we go again. This is going to happen all over again. And you can understand their panic. Uh, they, they really were worried that here we are. We've made a home for ourselves. We've tried to be responsible citizens. We've applied for territorial status. We want to become a state. And yet the government, in response to all of those efforts, is sending an army. So on September 15th, 1857, Brigham Young declares martial law. As you've mentioned, he's not about to relive Jackson County and Nauvoo. Let's listen to a little quote here from the book about the preparations Brigham is going to make. Before I will suffer what I have in times gone by, he declared in mid-September, there shall not be one building, 
nor one foot of lumber, nor a stick, nor a tree, nor a particle of grass and hay that will burn left in reach of our enemies. What is he saying, Robin? What are they going to do here to prevent the losses that they'd experienced elsewhere? It's a bit hard to put ourselves in the shoes here. So they've spent from 1847 to 1857, the Latter-day Saints have spent a decade essentially building a home for themselves. They've, of course, built up Salt Lake City, but they have settlements throughout Utah Territory. And we need to remember that when they were driven from the state of Missouri, there were a lot of people that came in and took up their property, uh, just robbed them essentially. And back in the days when you are settling land, taking over from the native peoples, essentially. The one sure sign of settlement are buildings and improvements on the land and crops and things like that. And that's really hard work to build property, to plow, to all of this is a, a tremendous amount of strain and it takes a lot of work. And so Brigham Young in this statement, in this attitude is essentially saying, we have come, we have improved the land, we have made a home for ourselves. And we're not going to just turn that over to anyone else. And if we can't enjoy the fruits of our labor, then no one can. And it's a pretty bold proposition. Brigham Young really is, I think, I would imagine that even at the time, fellow Latter-day Saints were thinking, well, are we really going to do this? But when I hear that quote, I hear the frustration that the years of persecution that Brigham Young has seen in his life, both personal with his family, but for the church that he loves. And that frustration is seen in these fairly extreme actions. And part of this preparation for defense is that missionaries are called home to defend their families. And so they're called home from all over the world. So tell us more about that and maybe some major players in this. Yeah, so the Latter-day Saint faith in the 19th century was a fairly labor-intensive endeavor. The men of the time were either out on missions or at home helping, assisting the women in building homes. And so yeah, we have Latter-day Saint missionaries throughout the world, and Brigham Young realizes that we can either spread the gospel or we can defend the church. And th there was a real demand for men to come and arm themselves, defend what they believed was true from this encroaching army. And it's a sacrifice because there were a lot of men serving missions who were doing a lot of good. So, for instance, George Q. Cannon was in California publishing. He was an editor of a newspaper in the day when that was how you got the word out. And so he was doing a lot of publication. Joseph F. Smith, for instance, was in Hawaii on a mission. So, in other words, all these individuals, the sacrifice to defend the church was that we were no longer, the church was no longer um, spreading the gospel. And that was a priority call made by Brigham Young that at the time made a lot of sense. So the proclamation that Brigham makes on September 15th is followed by a proclamation from the federal government on November 21st that the citizens of Utah are in rebellion. Did word reach the East that Brigham had declared martial law? Is the rebellion proclamation a response to that or are these things kind of passing in the night? So at the time, of course, we don't have email, we don't have, we don't even have telegraph. It's essentially people carrying letters across the country. And so when I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the hallmarks of the Utah war was miscommunication, it's because of this long lasting uh, communication. And so when something happens in Utah, it takes sometimes months to reach the East Coast. And of course, newspaper readers, editors are familiar with this. They recognize that news is late. But when there's word of rebellion in Utah from the East Coast, and then all of a sudden we have this proclamation of martial law that reinforces the understanding. So I would say that at the same time uh, or s simultaneously, 
they're talking past one another, but they're also confirming what the other side says. So the Latter-day Saints are saying, oh, the East Coast Gentiles are after us. They don't want to see us succeed. And then the East Coast is saying those Latter-day Saints, those Mormons, they're in rebellion. And that rhetoric is just ratcheted up as they both see what each other are talking about. One of the individuals involved, I think it was Alfred Cummings, maybe one of the peace commissioners said that this whole episode could have been resolved in face-to-face meeting with Brigham Young and and a representative of the government. And ultimately, that is what it took, um, just kind of a face-to-face meeting to see that the Latter-day Saints were not as bad as the Eastern presses made them out. Well, and it seems like because of the fear that the Saints had, they were kind of making it worse. But tell us about some of these things that they were doing to kind of thwart the efforts of the army. What are they doing to slow down the wagons and the the army that's coming this way? So the Latter-day Saints recognize that this army is approaching and they want to protect their families. And so they make decisions that on paper could be seen as an act of rebellion. So they're going up into the canyons. They are blockading the army. They're burning down supply wagons. They're, you know, scattering cattle, stealing cattle, things like that. In other words, they're not letting the army come to Utah. And this is an understandable approach. You have a a force of 2,500 soldiers coming. You don't know what's going to happen. You have past experience of houses being burned, people killed. They are defending themselves. And yet when word of that reaches the eastern coast, that just reinforces, oh, We have a a war on our hand. The Latter-day Saints really are in an act of rebellion. And so rhetoric, decisions, actions, all of that just continually ratchets up until we actually do have armed conflict. As all of this is happening, and as Shailen mentioned earlier, we have saints returning from various parts of the world. We have saints coming in from California, from the islands. One of the parts that sort of breaks my heart a little bit is Louisa and Addison Pratt are in California, and they're not really in line with each other. There's some disagreement, and Louisa says, hey, the prophet told me to come. I'm going, and Addison says, okay, I'll stay for a while. I I might join you later. That kind of breaks my heart because these two are people we've just grown to love. But then we meet Joseph F., who's coming back from the islands, and I've heard this quote before, so let's listen to it, but then maybe give us the context that would help our listeners understand a little bit more about what was really going on when this happened to Joseph F. Joseph walked into camp with firewood still in his arms. One of the riders trotted up to him with a pistol in his hand. Are you a Mormon? He demanded. Joseph looked him in the eye, fully expecting the man to shoot him. Yes, sirree, he said, dyed in the wool, true blue, through and through. The man gazed back at Joseph, bewildered. He lowered his pistol and seemed for a moment to be paralyzed. Shake, young fellow, he then said, reaching out his hand. I am glad to see a man that stands up for his convictions. This quote is, I grew up in the church, I've also heard this quote quite a bit. Um, And the lesson from this quote is often, yeah, you're in high school, you meet with friends and the friends say, wait, you remember the church? And you're supposed to be true to your conviction. Yeah. uh, (laughs) And that's a great lesson. I stand behind that moral from the tale. But we have to remember that this was not an academic exercise. This was not Joseph F. Smith saying, well, I I might lose some social capital if I admit to being a member of the church. There was every possibility that he would, in fact, have been killed. It happened before this time. It happened afterwards. Honestly, the fact that he wasn't shot and killed is quite remarkable. And so the fact that he has this conviction to stand up for what he believes in the literal face of death is just remarkable. 
And it also doesn't help that, uh, or it does help, I guess, depending on how you see it, that Joseph F. Smith, we sometimes view him as, you know, this old prophet with long white beard and whatnot. He was a firebrand. He really had a temper on him. And that temper um, we often see as kind of a weakness in people. But if you're standing up for your conviction, if you know what you believe in, then you can use that energy to testify to people. And you never know how they can react to that, how they'll react. This unnamed individual with a gun ultimately was just impressed. He's like, all right, put her there. <laughs> well, and so Robin, who are these people that are going to kill him? Why are they crossing paths? Why are they going to shoot him? So here we have Joseph F. Smith um, meeting these unfriendly individuals, uh, and they essentially were ruffians of the West. We have the stereotype of the old West, you know, outlaws, uh, people shooting other people left and right, and that's an overblown stereotype to be sure. But Joseph F. Smith on his way to Utah is meeting unfriendly individuals, individuals who did not like the Latter-day Saints, did not like Utah, did not like this religion that was encroaching upon their own settlements. California was uh, becoming an important settlement uh, area of non-Latter-day Saints. And so you have a lot of tension going on there and frequently led to violence. I just love thinking of Joseph F. Smith. Here he is, 18 years old. He'd just come home from a mission in Hawaii which he was called on when he was 15. <laughs> but as we've read in previous chapters, he was a real support to especially his sister, Martha Ann. And he had encouraged her in a letter previously to be a Mormon out and out. And so then here he is faced with this life and death situation. And as we see, he took his own counsel. Yeah, that's great. Alfred Cumming is the newly appointed governor uh, of the Utah Territory. And as I understand it, the army has been stopped for the winter. Alfred Cumming seemingly makes a really good decision and says, I'll go in. I think Thomas Kane advised him to do it. I'll go in with no army escort, no armed guards, and I just want to talk. What happens when Alfred arrives into the Salt Lake area? Yeah, he comes into the, the Salt Lake City. He sees that people are packing up. He sees that things are happening. And he realizes, I think, a couple things. First, he realizes that the armed resistance of the Latter-day Saints was a show. That This was not armed resistance in the sense that they were killing people. There were very few people who died in the kind of the era of the Utah War. And then the other thing that he saw, I think, was the Latter-day Saints' conviction to live peacefully. And if that meant destroying their settlement, burning down Salt Lake City, then so be it. And I think he realized, wow, maybe I have misunderstood what's going on here. It is pretty remarkable that he goes in without armed guard. He's relying on the word of Thomas Kane, friendly to the Latter-day Saints uh, in the past. But I would imagine it would have taken a little bit of guts to do something like that. But he gets in, he speaks with Brigham Young, and I think both men realizes that things have escalated too far and unnecessarily. And I think all it took was a conversation to realize that no one wanted armed conflict. No one wanted out-and-out -out battle between Latter-day Saints and the federal troops. And so I think from that point on, Alfred Cummings was on the side of peaceful resolution, and Brigham Young had wanted that from the start as well. So the governor is telling them, you don't need to go south. Yep. If I'm remembering correctly in the chapter, he's sort of shouting it from his wagon, you know, stay, stay, it's going to be fine. You won't be harmed or anything. Yeah. Right? And I kind of had to smile a little bit 
in the book, it says, despite the governor's reassuring words, the road south to Provo was choked with wagons, carriages, and livestock for 40 miles or more. And I thought, it's the first traffic jam at <laughs> point, point of the mountain. Of the mountain. <laughs> you know, uh, what a terrible time. But, you know, Joseph F. Smith is, they have these men stationed in the homes with torches. Then some, they've even placed explosives to blow the houses up yeah. to prevent them from getting it. The Peace Commission arrives. They work through that, as you mentioned. Let's listen to a quote here from the book about what happens next. A government peace commission arrived around this time and offered Brigham Young and the Saints full pardons from the president for their crimes, whatever they might be, in exchange for obedience to the government. The Saints did not believe they had committed crimes, but they accepted the pardons nonetheless. Well, tell us about this presidential pardon. Yeah, I remember as a kid being accused of something that I hadn't actually done, and it's kind of a similar thing where my parents or whomever said, it's okay, you're forgiven. And I'm like, no, I didn't do it. I, <laughs> unlike all the other times when I actually was in trouble, this is a time when I'm not in trouble. So there's a certain indignation of accepting a pardon where you feel that you are not in the wrong. And I think that this is the case here. Brigham Young, the Latter-day Saints, knew that they wanted peace the whole time. They wanted to be left alone. They wanted to be. Let us be, and we will build a kingdom to God. And that's not what happened. And so they also were realists. They also recognized that we need to accept this pardon. We need to understand that though we feel that we haven't done anything wrong, that this represents kind of a larger resolution for not just Brigham Young and Alfred Cumming or James Buchanan or whatever, but it's almost a way of bringing the country together, recognizing that the Latter-day Saints were not actually in rebellion, that things were blown out of proportion. And in fact, the Eastern presses eventually started to turn on the federal government saying, why did you let this happen, et cetera. And so, yeah, this peace resolution, Brigham Young accepted it because he knew that it needed to be accepted. Well, one of the reporters even said, whichever way we look at it, this war, this Utah war, is a great mass of stupid blunders. Yeah. And yep. so it's just kind of Brigham Young's just accepting it just for it to be over, it yeah. sounds like. Yeah. And what a tremendous expense, I mean, mm -hmm. to the federal government. It wasn't yeah. like this was a quick scouting company. This was a massive operation yeah. with lots of supplies and goods which when civil war breaks out ends up some of those supplies the saints are able to purchase at a really reduced cost and it ends up helping the saints to having camp floyd you know out on the west side of the city what other things can we take away from the, the utah war and the saints experience as it might apply to our lives today it's a good question i think in living the gospel latter-day saints are asked to prioritize all the time so, you know, we talked earlier about Brigham Young bringing back missionaries to defend Utah. And I think sometimes individual Latter-day Saints are faced with a similar proposition. Sometimes they are doing quite well in living the gospel, and they're letting that light shine. They are speaking to neighbors, they're helping family members, they're doing the things that they need to do, and things are going great. And then at other times, maybe even the very next day, <laughs> things seem to start falling apart and they feel attacked, they feel down, they feel despondent, they feel, you know, whatever might happen, they're just not feeling like they're up to things. And I would argue that that is not the time where you need to pull out your lengthy checklist of things to do, that you just pull things in that 
need to not be done and just focus on you. Focus on your relationship with the Spirit. Uh, make sure that you're defending yourself according to what you individually need. And so I think that there's maybe that analogy is stretched a little too thin or maybe, but I think that there's some truth there that sometimes we reach out and sometimes we don't have the strength to reach out and sometimes we just need to focus on ourselves. Sometimes we just need to make sure that we're doing okay. I like that idea, Robin, that sometimes it's important to focus on the home front. And then when we're able, we rebuild our strength, then begin to share again. I, I think that's awesome. We have one other piece of this story we'll end on today. In a, in a previous episode, we talked with Matt Groh about the massacre at Mountain Meadows. Truly one of the most horrific parts of our history, of Western history, Western United States, that is. It's a terrible thing. And in this chapter, John D. Lee comes to speak with Brigham Young to tell him about what's happened there. And let's just listen to a, a quote of what the book tells us about this. The Indians fought them five days until they killed all their men, he claimed, saying nothing about the saints' own participation. They then rushed into their corral and cut the throats of their women and children, except some eight or ten children which they brought and sold to the whites. So in the case of the Utah War, we had this miscommunication, misunderstanding. Here with John D. Lee, we just have lies. Yeah. What's happened here and what can we understand from this experience with John D. Lee? We sometimes shy away from this topic and I think that that's unfortunate because there are some important lessons to learn. We see here that John D. Lee, and he's often this, seen as the scapegoat. There were other people involved, of course. For sure. Um, but we see sometimes John D. Lee as making this mistake and trying to cover up his actions. And on kind of a, a general level, that's understandable. We're all kind of in that position where we do something and we're ashamed that we did it. We try to hide. We try to cover it up. We try to blame other people. We try to, you know, whatever it takes, just so long as I'm not to blame. And John D. Lee does all of that. Others in Southern Utah do all of that. And we need to face the truth that this is a universal attitude, that we're going to fall into the trap of following others to our detriment. Peer pressure is going to mount and we're going to do something that we know that we shouldn't. I think the lesson of the Mountain Meadows Massacre is to recognize that we need to constantly be vigilant in what it is that our actions are doing. Do our actions speak to the power and truth of the gospel? We hope so. Well, Robin, we appreciate so much the opportunity we've had to chat with you today. We look forward to future works from the Joseph Smith Papers. I know you've got some pretty exciting things coming up. What is it? Uh, not next year, but the following year, the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. You'll be lead editor on that project, which is going to be amazing. It's fun to go back to the book that started it all, so to speak. <laughs> well, I am excited to see that and uh, invite our listeners to check out your work over on the josephsmithpapers.org website. You can always reach us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. You can check out our website at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org, where you can see the latest videos and the topics we've talked about today and much more from the Saints Project. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you again for joining us today.